Hello and welcome to CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and I'm excited to share with you a special show today on negotiating your CISO package. Now, before you listen to this episode, we highly recommend listening to our episode number 106 on how to win your first CISO role. Now, just a quick recap if you haven't listened to that recently or listened to it at all. In episode 106, we talked about the different types of CISO roles. You'd be a startup CISO a segment CISO or a business information security officer, first line only CISOs, and then a traditional CISO. We then discussed the difference between being a CISO at a small, a medium, and a large company, and really what it takes to get to the Fortune 500 CISO level role. We highlighted what to include in your resume to get through the HR checkpoint and how to best answer questions with the STAR method. Remember, specific situation, task, action, and the result of the situation you're describing. And we also identified questions that make you look smart, while also highlighting your experiences during HR and hiring manager level interviews. Now, let's imagine that you've gotten all the way through those critical steps and you get a call from HR saying the company wants to move forward. What should you negotiate in your hiring package? We're going to go over that topic in detail so you can get the best opportunity to financially reward yourself and your family. And today, I'm very happy to have a special guest on board, Michael Piacente from Hitch Partners who is going to be able to give us an expert opinion in this area, because that's your area of expertise. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do. I co-founded an executive search firm that's called Hitch Partners, and we saw a need in the market to really focus in on the CISO position and their deputies, especially as the world evolved from more corporate security and IT security to more of an application and security engineering and product security focus as companies becoming more modern, moving towards cloud and other activities that were going on, we really doubled down into this space. And our primary focus is in the CISO and deputy space. We run about 30 to 40 executive searches a year. We're retained by our clients, but we talk to about 200 companies a year that are looking for this position or similar positions. And so I'm based in the Bay Area. Our team is spread out throughout the U.S. And we're excited to be in this community. It's very fun to be here. That sounds great. It's like a niche marketplace, but you're a master in it. And so as a result, you're probably going to be the best person to talk to. We'll go into this discussion, and I'm sure you're going to be able to have great ideas to contribute. I just say, this is absolutely my favorite topic. We're on our sixth CISO National Compensation Survey and Trend Report that's actually coming about this next week. But negotiating and understanding the nuances behind CISO and deputy CISO compensation is by far one of our favorite topics. And just for the listeners to know that it's actually an extremely nuanced field, right? And it's more nuanced than companies realize when they're talking to a CISO. CISO has special superpowers of understanding what their effects of the business are understanding how they can impact using their programs. So their questions around compensation tend to be a lot more thoughtful than most companies give them credit for. And so the presentation of an offer package is usually isn't as comprehensive as a CISO would like to see, and it creates questions. And we hope that's where our value comes in. Our role is really to guide the candidate to ensure that they're seeing full transparency in a compensation package, while at the same time balancing to ensure that a client, we're guiding them to make a very informed decision and to be sure that they're not underpaying or overpaying for a leader. And that this takes a number of conversations that are behind the scenes on our side of the business that a candidate may not see, a CISO may not see, but it's negotiating those finer and typically underestimates 
the recruiting, we're recruiting agencies, executive search firms are actually dealing with the client. So I just wanted to point that out, that there's a lot of nuance here and it's not just a straightforward kind of how-to guide. There's always a situational difference in every environment. So it sounds like you're an honest broker in the whole <laughs> situation. You're not twisting somebody's arm one way or the other, show me the money. Right. But rather, it's that's I mean, the deal. Exactly. For anyone that knows our business, we actually operate on a fixed fee, which is set. It's not variable. So it does not matter if one person is making more or needs to make more. Our compensation is flat, right? The pure motivation is to ensure that both the client and the candidate have an informed decision in front of them with no other motivations being. And so we also have guarantees. Ours are usually six months or a year. And so we're highly motivated to making sure that this environment or that this engagement is a long-term success. Our average is about just under four years for our placements. And so we want to ensure that, that everyone understands everything. Everything's going into this with open eyes and that it's going to be completely transparent. At the same time, we also respect the fact that a CISO's leverage to negotiate the proper compensation package starts with the offer phase and not a year later when they realize they may have been underpaid. So we want to try to get the best situation for that CISO to ensure that they have the most comprehensive and transparent package. And I think having that comprehensive view makes a good sense. I'm thinking years ago, it wasn't a CISO job, but it was back late nineties where I was taking a job over at Secure Computing Corporation. And it happened at the time to be finishing up my MBA. And one of the classes that was there was on negotiation techniques. And so I figured, hey, I'm studying this stuff. Let's put it to good use. And the company I was at, I was doing a lot of consulting and doing a lot of publicity. I was doing the traveling roadshow. And so the two places I could go to, like VP of consulting or VP of marketing, they hired in over the next several months from outside. So basically, bam, glass ceiling went over. Okay, I got nowhere to go. And so in this conversation with John over at Secure Computing, who originally was going to be a subcontractor. Hey, I'll throw a business your way. I said, I don't have anywhere to go anywhere I'm at. And he said, what do you really want to do? I said, I want to build a consulting practice. He said, why don't you come here? Okay. I didn't think of it first because I'm too much like my dogs. You tend to be loyal to your current environment. But I dug out my stuff. And of course, a lot of people think that the first thing you talk about is compensation. And you go, okay, what's my salary? And a lot of people are done with that. But you understand a little bit more that there's more to it than that. You got the base salary. There's also bonuses. And there's even things like stock options. And these stock options can come in as restricted stock units, or they could be something else. But in this particular case, they had an offer. And I said, what about this? I don't have to relocate, but you had a relocation thing in there. And you're happy to let me where I'm at. Could we put some of that toward a sign-on bonus? Sure. I've got stock options where I'm at. Do you offer stock options there? Why, yes, we do. And how about educational benefits? And how about this? And by the time I was all done with the package I had put together, I was able to repay my MBA program in its entirety within seven months of graduation. I did change jobs in the second half of that year. It was like November, December. And I said, what's your educational benefit? It was X thousands per year. And I said, was that per calendar year, academic year. He said, calendar year. So if I join the company in December, I can do it from December. And then so little stuff like that, if you don't think about, it's not there, but we were working cooperatively yes. to find a way to make it work. Because for the most part, that was not coming out of his operational budget. That was money that the company had. But for me, it ended up putting together a nice package where I could sell it at home to the family and say, this is great. And it created a great working relationship. We talked about there, as you say, salary, bonuses, stock options, and that's like a three-legged stool. So let's say for an example, you get a CISO start and they say, okay, we'll give you 300,000 base salary, 
opportunity for 100000 in bonus and 100 restricted stock units, assuming the stock's worth more than a dollar or something like that. So let's take these one at a time. What do you ask HR about? Does salary just stay flat or does it go up every year? And typically, there's going to be built into that something for an inflation base. Now, in the past, this hasn't been a whole lot. And usually the reference point, a lot of these things has been the consumer price index or CPI. And we'll see if you're a government employee or for me as a career military officer, you would get your military base based on whatever Congress said. And often it was the winds of politics that would change and it would either be higher or lower. But for the most part, you want to keep pace with inflation. Now, 2023, we've seen inflation has kicked it into another gear, and that may have to be a requirement. Now, what we're finding also is that inflations could be adjusted based on performance. If you're an average employee, you might get a 3% increase. If you're good, you're doing better than average, you might get 4 And if you're great, you might get 5%. Now, this is not a promotion that I'm talking about. A promotion might be 10 or 15% bump when you go to a different pay scale. But we're just talking, you're in the same job, you're in the same basic scope of responsibilities but you're going to get a kick up there. So that's one thing to understand up front. And there's no reason not to ask about that because it's nothing hidden and it's nothing horrible that they're saying, why is this candidate asking about how do we do annual performances? Another thing is also the bonus structure. And bonus is often based on performance. But the thing is, you're not guaranteed a bonus. Bonuses, if they were guaranteed, to be part of your base compensation. So you might find out that you get some or little or none of the bonus, depending upon if you're an underperformer. If you do well, you might get a full bonus. And sometimes if you're an overachiever, you could overmax that. And this is not in a sales environment where the more you sell, the more you get because you're not really in a sales role as a CISO. But if you can deliver some great value, you can potentially knock the cover off the ball when it comes to bonuses. Recognize, of course, that's also going to be an economic factor. If we're looking at a downturn in the economy, potentially we'll see what happens in the next few months. There might be some pressure on that as well. And now that we have our base salary, let's say it's going to be 300K and we've got our bonus pool of 100K, might be more, might be a little bit less. Then we also have an opportunity for these restricted stock options, but we haven't talked about that yet. So now when we're at 300 base and 100 bonus, now we're at the 400, maybe a little bit more for doing well, but wait, there's more because we want to understand is that bonus structure at risk? Because you could ask, if the company's been around a while, what did you do in 2008 or 2020 or 2021 if there was bonuses? Because if they didn't pay bonuses or if they did a whole bunch of furloughs or things like that, you might say, I don't know, they're probably going to lather, rinse, repeat and do it again because that might be part of their culture. 2023, we'll find out because we had COVID a couple of years ago, but now the real concern is what? If we're facing an economic downturn, we're watching the stock market going, eh, the bond market doing crazy stuff, the Fed trying to decide what they're going to do for the rates, and all that's going to impact us there. And so remember that when you come in for a bonus, it's probably going to be prorated. Although I was fortunate that I got a calendar year amount of academic assistance, but that was only a couple K, wasn't a lot of money. A performance bonus is going to probably be prorated and not given a whole year. So if you come in in June, you might be looking at half of that and stuff like that. But I've heard of a concept called a carve back. What does that refer to? Yeah. First of all, great content. I think this is super helpful for anyone listening. So there are situations and very often in our searches, you will see a signing bonus, which is to say that we may not be at the level of base compensation we need to today. We understand we might be light. It's just what our bands are or what we believe the 
base salary to be for this level, and or we do not have the right bonus structure. Maybe it's a newer company that has a really a bonus compared to the bands of leveling that they have, wherever there might be a couple other scenarios. But often one of the tools that are used is a signing bonus, which is paid. A portion of that is paid in the beginning upon start, your first paycheck or second. And the second one may be delayed six months or whatever it may be. And the reason why companies would do that is to spread the $100,000 signing bonus, which would be very large. But just using a full number, since I have problems with math, I, I would say they might pay a 50K signing bonus in the beginning of January and then a 50K in June. The card back comes if there's a risk in the candidate moving on or leaving before a certain amount of time that they actually have to pay that back or we call it clawback. And that is actually very common language in these offers that we see. So just to bring it forward to everyone to know that probably not necessarily walking in with the idea that you should be seeing a signing bonus, but where there is a delta in the perceived total value on the cash side, and that is one tool that companies may be open to administering, but there will be a clawback. Usually there is a clawback that's in the offer letter. Got it. And so we have the base compensation. We'll have the bonus, some possible sign-on bonus or annualized bonus. And the last piece of the total compensation would be stock. Typically, they're called restricted stock units or RSU. And you want to figure out if that $100,000 that they might say that stock is worth is being paid over a three-year or four-year, five-year. And there's vesting and there's price points and things such as that. And so the standard vesting schedule in my experience, has been around three years, but that's not guaranteed, is it? That's correct. Yeah, we have many companies that look at a four-year vesting schedule. There may be some acceleration in the first year. And I'd also say that in addition to RSUs, we work with a lot of private companies as well, probably half and half enterprise and private. And what, one of the things that we see is, is not necessarily RSUs, but options. An option is essentially the value of an option is based on a 409 valuation, which is an independent third-party valuation of the company's common stock. And it basically informs the price. It informs the price of the employee stock valuation. So it's a fair market value assistance. It's not real money yet. No event has occurred, but you do need to put a value on it. And that would be the stock options, which are very common. The difference is the RSU, you can look at the stock symbol and see where the trends are being and, and predict, although no one's going to be able to tell you exactly where the value of your overall equity will be in that company. Whereas with a private company, you will be looking at the, the options based on a third party evaluator compared to where competitors are and things of that nature. So in those situations, we always recommend that you get the maximum amount of transparency from the client as from the company as you can. And there's an effort to, we can talk about it in just a bit, but there's an effort to get through that process that requires a little bit of nuance. Yeah, I agree because let's fast forward a couple of years from when I went to work for that company back in the nineties, there was a little startup that was saying, Hey, we want to acquire a professional services consulting arm. And they did, they bought us lock, stock and barrel. And they, I've got all these stock options that are waiting to vest. And normally, because they're already accounted for, we figured, okay, fine, we'll make you whole and then come on board. In this particular case, these guys said, we're going to cancel all of your stock options. We're going to give you twice as many in our new company. And other people are going like, oh, wow, that's great. <laughs> Time out. I'm doing my MBA. Twice nothing. This is fungible. This is a publicly traded company that we're working for. You're in startup mode. How many shares are authorized? How many shares are issued? How many? We don't want to answer all that. 
And I ended up becoming that guy because I was asking all the deep questions in the initial negotiations. We all ended up going on board anyway, but I said, this has got to be worth, I'm going to lose 95%. You know what? I was almost exactly right when I finally left. My restricted stock options were about five cents on the dollar from what I would have had from before. So that does happen. And so be careful because to a certain extent, particularly in a takeover or something like that, companies don't want to give you screw you money right up front. They're going to make you obtain it over a period of time. And hopefully by then you build your loyalty. So let's put on our mathematics hat and do some calculations here. So if we go back to our scenario, 300 base, 100K bonus, 100K restricted stock units in your first year, you, maybe you're just you're starting out, so you're average. So you don't get any extra stock. You start in June, you get half your bonus. So 300K base, 50K in bonus, so 350K total. So yeah, still not bad. Year two, though, you get your cost of living allowance. Let's say it's only three. You're a good performer. So now you're at 309, 120K in bonus, and now you get 33,000 in stock. So now you're up to about 460,000, which is a whole lot better than 350. And in year three, now you get a 4% cost of living. You get a great performance because after all, you're a well-experienced CISO. So now you might get your base of 320, 200K in bonuses, 66,000 in stock. And now in the third year, you're making over $587,000. That's a lot more than the 350 in year one, and which is your salary is likely to go up significantly if you stay with a company and you get better at your job because your bonuses will show improved performance. The vesting of those stock option options kick in. You get some more money. And also it's designed to create a few of these golden handcuffs. They don't want people taking the money and leaving. The longer you stay, the better you do. And some companies like Amazon, for example, have traditionally given a lot of their compensation beyond a certain cash point in stock. And for many years, they could say their stock's going to go up 15%. And year after year from like 2010 till about 2021, that was pretty true. Not so much last year or so, and we're in a whole different world. But one thing to remember, though, is that these RSUs or stock uh, options are basically how do you value them? You already talked about that. Someone else would come in if they're not a publicly traded company and say, what's it worth? That was the question I had when I changed jobs from a publicly traded company to a private startup. But it's really important if the company stock price goes up or down, if you're in a Fortune 100 company, because there you might see 25 to 50% of your total compensation being in stock, at which point you could then see one to $3 million in total compensation. And that could go down quite a bit if the stock goes down or conversely, if the stock goes through the roof, happy, happy joy. Thoughts on that? Absolutely. There's a lot to unpack there. But first of all, a great guide. So going back to privately held companies, I guess first the point I would make is that what you alluded to, which is entering these discussions is not to them overly definitive or confident or overstating the approach, right? It's not a one size fits all, even at a public company, which you might think, okay, they have a standard protocol for their offers. That may be true. They may be a little bit more mature in that, but there's always triggers and things to think about nuances. But in a privately held company, you need to understand that first of all, they may do, especially coming out of this downturn, that there may be some creativity or lack of maybe transparency and how they're evaluating, how they're evaluating the value. Right. I think a lot of the private companies we've worked with is hold back on, on showing the full blown covers of what's going on. And you really need, do need to not push, but be curious and ask, how would I value the total valuation of this offer 
over the course of four years? Can you show me the valuation of other like companies that have gone through similar trajectories in your funding and your revenue stream and asking the pertinent questions to ensure that you have full transparency of what the value of the offer is. And by the way, your comments on the public companies having a large percentage of the value in equity is very true in private. In fact, most of our privately held offers are about 30 to 40% cash based and about 60 to 70% equity based. So it's incredibly important to understand what will the value be as the, as the years go on and how can I impact that with my security program that I'm building? How can I enable the business? And so that's, if you're looking at helping a company to be built and to grow that company and you have 60 or 70% of your equity of your entire compensation driven into the equity of the company, it's a very fair question to understand what the level of transparency is about the value of that over time. No one's going to predict it exactly, nor will put it in writing, but you can have a very frank conversation with some curious questions to get to that. Um, and you want to also understand what the intention is, because if the company is a startup and they're going to go well, and there's a goal to perhaps go public, there may be an opportunity at some point to say, hey, let's clean up that cap table. So for example, one town over from here where I live is no before in Clearwater. And Stu Sharman, I've known him for over a decade, and he did quite well. They did a reverse spec about a $2 billion IPO. And I remember talking to him several years ago about saying, what can I do to help out? And is there any equity opportunity? And they said, once they really got going, they're like, well, we're actually trying to clean up our sheet a little bit. So we're buying back the stock we gave to some of the early people and buy it back at a, definitely a plus up. So they're happy to get it now, but it made it a lot easier to go ahead and do the financial transactions to go big when they only had a very small number of shareholders. So you got to look carefully. It might be deep into the, the TNC, if you will, of that offer, but you want to make sure that you're not thinking like, oh, I'm going to have all this stock. I'm going to be worth a ton of money only to find out that well, buried in there is a right to, cl to claw back, buy back, et cetera, at some price, usually just established by the board. You don't have any input in it. Yeah. I, to throw another fun one in there, there's a concept that may are starting to get wise on in a private company that may be an acquisition target. And that is called a double trigger, very common use in the venture capital space. But what it does is it, I'll walk through the mechanics of it, but essentially a single trigger would be an acquisition. A double trigger would be a change of scope. So you are excited to be the CISO of this budding series D company, and they move into an acquisition mode where you are now been blessed with a new position upon the execution of the, of the acquisition. The acquirer now offers you a senior manager of detection and response in their global security organization, and you were well on the path of being a CISO. So to project you in that scenario, you would have a double trigger clause in your agreement that will forward vest your equity, a certain portion of it. In CISOs, we see an average of about 50%. CEOs and CFOs may be closer to a 75 or 100%, but it's meant to protect the immediate redundancy of the position and the change in scope of that position to a potentially a lesser. And again, I would warn on these double triggers. This is not a standard. It is something that you should ask what the appetite or what the history has been for double triggers in this environment that you're moving into. If none of the executives have it, they're probably going to have an allergic reaction if you ask for it or demand it. If there are, if there is some, I guess, precedent for it, then they'll probably be open to it. But maybe your level that they're considering this position is not at the level that would warrant a double trigger. And that's where the conversation has to start. Are you okay with the person that's responsible for 
managing, protecting, and enabling your data across your business and narrating your security program, both internally and externally, are you okay with that person not being part of the exact ideas and benefits that other executives have? I would say that the CISO role deserves that, just like they deserve to be on the DNO policy, which we can get into in a bit. Double triggers for a privately held company, not so much the exposure on a public company, but a privately held company is at least in our searches, it is 90 plus percent in there for almost every negotiation, but again, not an absolute. But some great insights because some of the stuff I had not even heard of before. So I'm taking some notes here, but besides total compensation, there's other things you can negotiate when getting hired. One may be to ask what's the amount of leave that's typically given to the company. And when you may not see, may have a copy or take a look at a copy of the company's benefit policy. And you look at it and it says new employees get 10 days of annual leave. And then Eventually, after 15 years of the company, you get 20 days off. So do yourself a favor and say, hey, I've come here with over 15 years of experience. And therefore, I am at the seniority level. I need the 20 days of annual leave per year. It's not a deal breaker usually on the other end because there are people getting that. But if you're starting later in the year, it's going to be prorated. So don't expect to start in the first week of December and say, hey, I got the rest of the year off. I'm going to come back on the 3rd of January. But other things I had mentioned earlier, reload and starting bonuses. If they really want you to relocate, there's a cost of moving costs. And ideally, they'll cover the cost of closing on your home. In some cases, they'll buy your house at whatever. Right now, we're seeing a real estate market all of a sudden getting soft and squishy. A year ago, not so much. It was a lot nicer. So again, you have to figure out about what are the relocation policies? And you say, but wait, there's more. So in addition to the benefits and the sign-on and the opportunity for leave and relocation and starting, let's talk about starting bonuses. It's common to ask for a bonus and probably get one when you start a new role because you might be leaving behind unvested stock units and things such as that. And you might find out that you've got 401ks that haven't been put into play and therefore you're going to leave that money behind. And in my particular case, I remember when I went to work for Ernst & Young, I got hired to run their Wall Street security practice. I said, I got a bunch of clients that I've got to wrap up work on. And it wasn't so much a starting bonus, but it was more of a matter of how much do they pay you if you leave? Because if you've been there a certain number of time, you'll get X number of months. If you're there less than a year, for example, you get a small fraction of X. And all those things can work in there that you can think of. Any thoughts in terms of other ideas that we might want to consider with regard to that argument? Yeah, three three points here. One, these all lead to different nuances and triggers that happen during the negotiation process, but it leads to a mean, a bigger topic, which is you hear the initial offer and then you think through, talk to your friends, talk to your spouse, and you think about what can I counter with, which is highly recommended to look at it. Very few times have we seen an offer right out of the gate be accepted on the spot. You should think about it. This is a huge decision. It does not happen many times in your life and you should be really thoughtful about it. That said, if you are going to go down the path of countering, you should be prepared to accept the counter if they meet your requirements and your requests, I should say. We wouldn't advise them to speak solely on just base salary, for example. You probably want to look at the other triggers and look at the entire comprehensive nature of the asks. Look at the total value of the offer. And by the way, CISOs are not generally good at this, nor should they be, right? This is my job. I'm supposed to be good at this. Some people could argue whether we are or not, but the idea is that you're not supposed to be excellent at negotiating your own offers. 
this is an educational process while we're doing this. I would say that, again, use that curiosity, advise to look at the comprehensive total package, the value over time, whether public or private, as opposed to a lot of candidates we know very fixated on the cash, specifically in the base salary. Hey, I heard base salary averages of CISOs are supposed to be north of 300. Why is mine 285? You could go in with that 15K delta, but if you are going to counter, be sure to hold to your word and uh, don't counter a second time if they give you everything that, that they've asked for. Yeah, that's right. Don't be a jerk, if you will, to put it very well, succinctly. If you think about the nuance of you countering multiple times, it also uh, gives them a little bit of a window on how you might interact in the business in general, yeah. not that everyone's involved in your negotiations. So the, just a couple of points there to mention, uh, but I think you've hit the, the broad strokes. Right. It's a good point. Now, let's say we've got all this numbers worked out and we're all agreed to on paper, but we're almost not quite there yet because we want to think about our title and our responsibilities. Because we'll walk in saying, hey, I'm an officer of the company. I'm a CISO. But you might find out that the officer level is really reserved for senior vice presidents and higher. So you might say, what's my peer? Am I like a managing director? Am I a VP, a senior VP, an executive VP? Where do I fit in that hierarchy? And then once you know that, you want to find out about your corporate liability insurance policy, because that's something important. We've seen CISOs be held legally liable for things that they've done, sometimes criminally liable as well. So you might want to say, hey, if all directors are above or somebody has to sign an SEC statements, they're covered by directors and officers insurance or DNO. And then you might ask, hey, can you please confirm that as a CISO, I'm covered under the DNO policy? Because that's another way, inversely, of asking where do I fit in? Because if you're thinking you're here and they're going, ah, yeah, you don't have to worry about that. You're way down here. Then you're probably not where you think you're going to be. And to a certain extent, it's like the difference between a commissioned officer versus a non-commissioned officer in the military. You, you get a very different experience. Well said. I think for everyone to understand, this coverage extends to cost of defending it. It could arise from criminal or regulatory investigations, regulatory being the soup du jour these days, and or trials, right? And the one thing that it doesn't protect is if there was an intentional illegal act right? That is not going to be typically covered under DNL policies. Again, the majority of our offers that we work through, we highly recommend that the candidate ask for to be placed on the DNO policy, given the nature of the work, the signatures that have to go on SOC 2 and ISO reports, anything that's regulatory based. If you are the signator or the creator of the content that allowed the signatory to, to get to that point, it's being audited. Um, you should be protected. CISOs are at great risk of this. Again, not the absolute playbook to go in and demand it, but say, I would greatly appreciate it if there's a consideration to be included on the DNO policy. Here are the reasons why. Usually there's not too much of a fight for that, but it is important. Many CISOs forget to ask and then getting on it later becomes a little bit of a bigger issue. But to your point about the stature of where it is in the organization, does this organization really feel that the CISO or deputies are really going to be at risk in the greater good of what we're trying to achieve here? Are they being asked to be at the seat of the table and how will they be treated in their programs? A great way to determine that is, are they interested in having me extended on a DNO policy, right? I will be involved in the strategy, not just asking me to sign it, but asking me to be part of the architecture of that. So I think it's a great way to look at it. In general, I wanted to make a comment about titles. Uh, I think titles are fairly overinflated in the CISO world. There's a large portion of CISOs that are not currently doing the CISO scope. Well, there's a large portion of P 
people providing this CISO scope who do not yet have the title. I think it comes down to leveling in the company. We always uh, recommend if it's a head of security, it's probably sitting around the director, senior director level. If it is a, a CISO, a true CISO, it should definitely be in the VP or SVP level as well. But the actual title is really more of a badge of honor to be in the CISO piece. But, but a lot of people don't have that title. A lot of people should have that title. So I just want to make that. That's a good point. And there's other things as well, accelerated vesting, saying if, for example, there's a change in control, is it going to go ahead and bring your stock options forward? That's something I did not have when I was at the other company. And they right. said they wiped it out. Had I known to negotiate that, because I was getting a lot of things in my negotiation, they probably said, yeah, sure. And that was, as I say, in retrospect, that was a half a million dollar mistake from 25 <laughs> years ago. So it would be real money today. You could also pre-negotiate a severance agreement. And the severance agreement, as you had said before, unless it's a criminal action, which we're talking about DNO, but also that tends to work into the severance agreement, you want to make sure that unless you've really done something horribly wrong, that if they have cutbacks or layoffs or things such as that, that you're actually going to be able to get something to walk out the door rather than, okay, here's your last two weeks. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the ideal situation in a negotiation would be to have both a double trigger if it's a private company, if it's a public company, to have an accelerated severance agreement. Just so you have, you hear the word golden parachute, right? But if you have three months of salary and bonuses paid in advance, knowing that's there, it gives you a little bit of flexibility or nine months. Really, depend, Like you said, it depends on your leverage. Also, it depends on the company. Some companies are completely allergic to putting that in their agreements. Others are flexible, but they may not have a standard yet. Maybe it's a clear 90 days, maybe it's six months. It's definitely worth the ask, understanding what the appetite is to accept this because there's nothing right now. We're in a situation where you have probably 25 to 30% increase in candidates, system candidates that are actually active on the market for the first time in 10 or 15 years. They have not looked for a job before and their positions have been terminated due to financial concerns. A lot of them who I talked to did not have the luxury of a severance agreement and separation. And they're having that issue right now of timing. I need a position right now, understandable and very concerning. But so it's better to negotiate that up front if you can. Again, not an absolute, but that's something to definitely consider. Yeah, and something I learned personally years ago is live below your means. And <laughs> that's true. Be able to build up a little reserve over time. And as a result, you end up with a pretty good cushion because ultimately when you retire, you're going to need to have a cushion. So don't expect it to appear in your 65th year. It's like, boom, magic money shows up a little bit every time. And it just means when times are going well, live normally. And when times are not going so well, you can make up the difference. And in general, you'll tend to act as a buffer and that should work out. My, my mom told me, she said, when you were a kid, you'd wouldn't open all your Christmas presents on Christmas. You'd save some for a week or two. And finally, she said, I had one box. I made you open it because you had clothes. You're going to outgrow if you didn't open it. And so maybe that's an extreme for a, little, for a kid. But generally, you find out that you do better if you're willing to wait on things. And I think companies, if you find out that you're not coming in there like a bull in a china shop demand, but you're showing, hey, I'm going to prove my value. And if I prove my worth and prove my value and contribute to the organization, then let's agree to an opportunity that we can have that because people's change jobs change. That really excited manager who hired you, who fought with HR to get you the best deal, that HR interviewer who seemed to really hit it off with and things went really smoothly. Those people may not be there in two years or three years. And it's a whole different ballgame. And whatever you had in writing is going to be the trump card. And so therefore, one last little suggestion here in the time we have remaining 
is think about getting an attorney to look at the agreement. I've never hired an attorney to look at an employment agreement. It's like, I can read it. I can understand it. But they have contract lawyers. They use things that are designed literally by lawyers. And guess what? If you're an attorney, your job is to protect your client, not the person with whom the client's doing the deal with necessarily. So spend 500 bucks, spend a thousand bucks, get somebody who understands contract law to take a look at that. You think that is that something that you would recommend also for your clients at the level we're talking about? For the candidate, for sure. Yeah, I don't know that they absolutely have to go lawyer up every time they have an yeah. offer, but it is great practice to have someone who looks at the legalities behind this and says, okay, this looks good. It's worth that investment. It's also worth noting that many of the states are at will now. And so their language will be fluid in the fact of levels of termination. Do they absolutely owe this termination bonus? A lot of CISOs are not under typically the employment contract. There are some that are, but those employment contracts are nullified and many just like they cannot hold you to it. You cannot hold them to it as well. So just be prepared for that when the lawyer says we can enforce this, but it is an equal state so they can do what they wish. And so can you. So just yeah, I used to tell people if they, if you had a non-compete agreement, just ask to say to be enforced in the state of California. Right. They don't work there. Then you just nullify that whole thing. And if they don't understand that, good on you. You kind of trumped them until they figure out that you pulled a fast one and they're not too happy. Correct. But then that, but, but then if you're exercising your right to leave under non-compete, they're not happy that you're leaving anyway. Yeah. So we never even got into how much our job's worth and things like that. And there's got some references. We'll put the references in, in the show notes. But I know that Hitch Partners is a CISO compensation and organizational structure survey report. And so I'll give you a quick pitch for that since that's yours. And quick little thoughts on that before we wrap up. Yeah, thank you. And we started this six years ago. We're actually coming out with our sixth version of it this Monday. It will be ready midweek for those on general availability. And the idea was that when we first started this business, knowing that we had both the corporate security side and the application security side business, the software companies and enterprises were both our clients. The data wasn't there. Was some traditional, more legacy data sources that are usually anywhere from 40 to 60% off. It's a massive number. And so we wanted to get the true data. So we started looking at our own search data. And then we started asking CISOs themselves, all industries. This year's compensation is a little over half participation coming from the enterprise market and a half coming from the more private sector or private software companies, technology companies. That's a little bit more weighted on, on enterprise, which is great. But it gives you a realistic, non-marketing, fluffy idea, but also trends of what's going on in different areas. So we, we love having that. The only thing I would say is and people use this as a tool to negotiate. But I will warn that it's, it stands on its own, but it's always better to negotiate when you have a, the best thing to negotiate against is if you have another offer, not if you have our job, our compensation survey, which I think is great, but there's other great ones out there standing alone on that, using the survey itself to walk into your HR team and say, this is what I want. Isn't going to go as well as if you have an actual competing offer or whether that offer is your existing company trying to retain you or an, an another offer that you are entering for. Just keep that in mind as uh, just food for thought. We love when people use our tool all the time. That is exactly why we intended it for, but there's also great ways to use it that are beyond just looking at the data. Well, that sounds great. And thank you, Michael, for all your insights. And for audience, yes. we hope you've enjoyed these tips to negotiate your best CISO package. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, give us a thumbs up someplace. Give us a five star on the platform you listen. We're not grade grubbing, but that's basically how people find you is you get kicked up there in the rankings and things like that. Share it on LinkedIn and 
your friends. And we do have a LinkedIn site that has more than just our podcast. We've got other resources. If you have a question for the show, ask it to us. Share it with everybody else. We'll give you an answer for it. And hopefully we'll be able to get a chance to engage with you. Again, this is your host, G. Mark Hardy. It's been a privilege to be with you today. Michael Piacente, thank you very much for being part of our show. Until the next time, stay safe out there.